love you. Father, we thank you for everything, Lord, that you have done and are continuing to do. And Lord, I'm just, I'm asking God during this time of conversation, Holy Spirit, that you, being the great question asker, would put questions in our hearts that will lead us to answers, Lord, that cause us to grow in the knowledge of who you are. Lord, even right now, Lord, we just take a minute and ask you, Holy Spirit, to come and release questions. God, release divine questions that lead to divine answers. Lord, I'm asking that you would release a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of who you are, God, in this room right now. Lord, that our hearts would be undivided and focused, Lord, on you, and that, God, we would set ourselves in a posture to not only listen and hear, but to obey the voice that is speaking to us on the inside. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Who's got a question? And I will say this too, to, to you guys, to the panel. Uh, if you guys have something that you want to just say during this time or you want to share and it, it's not connected to a question, then that's okay too. So. I will, I will facilitate that. They're all on, but they're not. There's not the feedback, so yeah, I'll, I'll, I will redirect the questions. Yes. Yes. What is the fivefold, and why is it important? All right, glory to God. Here we go. Yeah, whoever wants to start, go ahead. Well, Ephesians four, it's the Lord. These are these are gifts Jesus gives. So there's the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which are, you know, the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit, probably first Corinthians. You know, you can look through there. But uh, these are the gifts that Jesus gave when he ascended. It says that right there in Ephesians four. So some people call these the ascension gifts. They're gifts from Jesus that he set into the church. Like Tammy said so well, I thought she said that so well, it's for a purpose, and that is to bring us into a maturity, all of us becoming like Jesus together. Um, and like she said, also, there is a tendency today, unfortunately, for some people to take that into a place where it becomes my badge, it becomes like a, a, a sense of a title, rather than a function that's supposed to function together. And so you have people that think, just because someone has a type A personality, they may be the tallest person in the room, semi-good looking, they should be leading something. Oh, they're an apostle. And I think that and a person who has an, an apostolic gift, for me, it's they're going to walk in high realms consistently of the fruit of the Spirit. They're going to have the character and nature of Jesus on display a lot of the time. Not to say that they're perfect or they can't be flawed. Of course, they're flawed. Uh, they have flaws. They have, they're reaching for Jesus just like the rest of us. But there is a maturity there. And if, if you had to ask me what are the top, if I've, I've been around some men and women that I thought were, had that gift on their life, on their life. And it is a grace gift from Jesus to, to lead, obviously, but it is to manifest the character and nature of Jesus. High degrees of humility, kindness, 
very kind, very self-controlled. Um, I think it's sad today that if you want posts on social media, just say apostles, prophets, apostles, prophets, rather than the New Testament elders list in Timothy and Titus. See, I'm not raising my daughter to become a prophet. I'm raising her to become an elder. She's, and the reason why apostles and prophets is more something that we're interested in is because there is a list of qualifications for a New Testament church leader in Titus and Timothy. And if you don't match that list, you're disqualified. So outbursts of anger disqualifies you from, from leader, love of money, love of, of alcohol, not being sober-minded. There's a list. And so we don't ever talk about that list because we'd be disqualified uh, many times. So I'm like, I want to emphasize the list for, that Paul listed for church leadership um, and, and realize, you know, nobody's perfect. You know, you're going to, people fall short, but it's your heart to model that type of leadership in a local uh, gathering of believers. So uh, I'll stop there. Maybe you want me to? Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, so for me, according to Ephesians 4, um, I believe Paul, when he says, and to some are given, uh, I don't think everyone who wants to identify as one of these is actually authentically authorized into one of these categories. Um, I know we live in a big identify culture, and whatever I feel I want to be, um, I actually believe that the writer gets to choose the intention of the words that he uses. And so rather than coming with my own desires, I have to come and let the word say what it says. Right? For me, the, the leadership gifts are all represented in the life of Jesus. Right? They're, they're aspects or facets of the person and the life of Christ that gets almost like the loaf gets broken into bits and pieces, right? Which then get experienced in a community or in a family setting. Um, and I do believe that, um, you know, in the aspects of the person of Jesus, in these different leadership gifts, they are to provide an equipment to the body. Right? That's the purpose. They carry equipment unto equipping the body. Um, they go low. You turn the whole triangular system upside down. Right? Like the, the whole pyramid scheme, you turn it upside down. And like these leadership gifts are gifts, not burdens to the body. <laughs> they're gifts. So they're gifts to the body. They go low and in humility they see the joyful sacrifice and servitude of their life in providing the equipment that the body needs, which has been graced to them uniquely from the person of Jesus, which keeps them in humility and dependency, yes. right? And, and the operation or the function of that leadership gift is unto the aspects of the person of Jesus so that we can reach a full measure or stature and not be imbalanced, right? Um, you know, and it has nothing to do with value, right? I, I think that's where we get things off. 
Uh, it has nothing to do with value. It has everything to do with accountability. It, it has everything to do with being responsible to the Lord and stewarding what is the grace on your life in a way that's going to honor God and produce a well done when you see him. It has nothing to do with value, right? Like in my house, um, everybody in my house knows that I'm the dad, right? Like I don't run around like always proving the point to my kids like I'm the dad. It, it, it's a function. I'm responsible to the Lord. But in that, the value of every member in my house is the same. The value, we're not, we're not having a value conversation, right? Like we, we take assignment and ascribe value to assignment instead of identity, right? Our value is in our identity. And then we want to be responsible to the Lord with whatever our assignment might be. Um, you know, and if we don't have security in our identity, then we get insecure and we chase after assignments that are going to make us feel like we are what we don't believe we actually are. You know, so even in the leadership gifts, it's, it's not, if we would just get free in the love of God and in identity, I think that we would all be comfortable with and to some. <laughs> you know, uh, and most, uh, I mean, as sad as it sounds, you know, when you have a perspective on like a national or global scale of the Christian landscape, right, you begin to understand that most feel called into ministry out of insecurity and not out of intimacy. They feel called and they're trying to press their life into a category where Paul said, and unto some. But they're trying to press their life into a conversation that's going to make them feel seen, make them feel valued, make them feel important. Um, you know, because church culture and the, the monstrosity of what has become the machine uh, of organizational and just whatever, functional, transactional ministry. Um, does a terrible job at creating what is a level playing field and leveling the playing field with the equalizer, right? Where value is inherent because it's attached to identity. It's not attached to assignment, right? It's not attached to assignment. Um, but we try to press into these conversations because we don't feel valued and we're not secure in the place of identity to be free enough to just do what God said to do. Um, you know, but then on the reverse side of that, uh, I just see it as their leadership gifts, their facets of the person of Jesus unto a full stature, a maturing of the body. And when the equipment is actually provided, then it says the saints can awaken and they can begin to work and give their lives to what Ephesians 4 considers a full time life of ministry. So full-time ministry is the saints. There it's not the relationship to these leadership gifts. So in that context, fam, then full-time ministry is not an occupational thing. It's not a profession. It's not something that you need to get paid to do. And even what I think, to go back to what Mike said about the majority of people in ministry they, they end up in it out of insecurity rather than intimacy, which is why it then produces a striving towards things that uh, look like they're more valuable, yeah. right, than really they are. So and even out of, outside of Ephesians 4, I just want to read these verses here. 
which are also oftentimes used in connection in and in in outside of the context of the verse where Paul is talking in 1 Corinthians uh, 12, 27 and 28. And he says, now you are Christ's body and individually parts of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, and various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? Question mark. All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. And yet I am going to show you a far better way. The most excellent way of love, intimacy with Christ. So even there in the context in Corinthians 12, and maybe we can actually keep talking about it a little bit more if you guys want to. When Paul is saying first apostles, this is not a value system. It's not if you're an apostle, you're more important. You're not, not only are you not more important to the Lord, you, you're not actually more important to the body because you are. Real apostles and prophets, men and women of God who are those gifts given to the church by the Lord, Again, to go back to Matt was saying, I, we, I'm looking for the humility, the meekness, the lowliness, the, those men and women who have laid down their lives to consider the lives of the ones they're serving better than their own. Not a hierarchy. Not a, when, when, the, when the disciples come to Jesus to question him about authority, you cannot get away from his words when he says, and you will not lord your authority over one another as the gentiles do for you are all brothers and the greek word for brothers in that translation is equals you're equal you may not be equal in authority but you're equal in value you're you are to be relating to one another not as i'm over you and you're over me and i'm over but in love we are mutually submitted to one another in christ jesus jesus being the head of the church and the chief cornerstone I feel like this cannot be overstated for us in this season on a global scale of as the as the Lord again well said takes this pyramid that not he built that man has built and flips it back on its head but in my opinion this is what Jesus came to do 2000 years ago. He came and turned that pyramid upside down on its head and we've been trying to turn it right side back up for 2000 years. We just we're just bent on again because Ministry equates identity, which relates to value in us. It produces this stuff that is just so dysfunctional, so unhealthy, so unbiblical. And then, and this is the reason why I feel like however many thousands of men and women are leaving the ministry a week or a month in America. Well, I feel like that's the validation of what Mike said of because you came there out of insecurity rather than intimacy. Yeah. You were trying to prove something to yourself and to others about your value. When in reality, it's probably more realistic that God's called you to manage a factory or, or be a crew chief at McDonald's or run a gas station or build a business or be a doctor. or And we've just this thing of full-time ministry, microphones, platforms, the whole deal. Some of the most powerful men and women of God I've ever personally met are people that the world's name will, the world will never know their names. A hundred percent. So anyway, I, I don't know we can keep, do you guys want to keep, you know, you want to add to that, Matt? I'm 
Okay, Tammy. Oh, and them, yeah. Next, who's got another question that, that relates to this? Anybody? Within the, within the church, the leadership, right? So the set of Tim, like in Timothy, so you got this list of this is this is what you'll be, or this is the characteristics you have to have in order to be called a leader within the church, correct? But aren't we all called to be leaders? Because um, we're all supposed to be holy and set apart unto God, right? And so with that, wouldn't we have standards set in our life that would actually put us in that, that realm even uh, as an average Christian that, do, that does work in the warehouse or that does work at the car wash or whatever you're doing, like, shouldn't you have those sets of standards in your life no matter what? Um, and then if, if somebody was to look, because, like, I'll tell you, so to kind of reiterate what I'm saying here is, like, when I got saved, I was a junkie, and, like, I lived in a gutter. You know what I mean? There was nothing in my life that reflected that I loved Jesus. But I had a, a heart transplant inside of a rehab facility, and like it took time for me to get junk out of my life so that I can live such a way that would put my, myself within the standards of what the scripture says, right? But as I started to do that, my life started to be transformed in such a way to where people started to look at me and call me a leader, right? Um, so with that, I looked at it like, no, God says that I'm supposed to be holy and set apart unto him. And so I just laid down and got holy and set apart unto him. But then, like, all these other things started to, to manifest in my life, right? So I'm not really sure what that question was. But, <laughs> like, I'm just saying, like, so as, as, a, as just an average Christian, right, as an average believer, um, when does that get determined that those, I, I guess, the, any, any one of those fivefold parts would become your label? I hope this helps somewhat. Uh, transformation is non-negotiable for the believer. It's a non-negotiable. Um, Jesus has been promised a transformed people. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, when we're in Christ, our experience is unto a new creation. Right? In Romans 5 and 6, it's those who are alive from the dead. We are freed from the curse and no longer enslaved to sin. So transformation is not optional. It's not something that's only attached to if you have a desire for ministry, if you have a desire for leadership. Um, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and Galatians 5 is not just for professional or uh, ministry members, so to speak, as we know them historically, organizationally. Um, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and Galatians 5, is the evidence of the Spirit's work in the heart and life of a person that has yielded themselves to the leadership of Jesus. So over time, the evidence of that Spirit's work unto a transformed reality is supposed to be demonstrated in all of our lives 
as we're born again and we're a new creation. Now, where Timothy and Titus come into play is when you're actually considering people to bear a reproducible influence in the church, where you're going to establish people with like a 1 Corinthians 4.16 or a 1 Corinthians 11.1, where Paul says, follow me as I follow him. To consider someone as a pattern, as Paul and those who, those who walked with him, those who were a part of his team and family. Um, you know, he says to the Philippians, consider those who walk according to the pattern that you saw in us. He says to the Thessalonians, when we were with you, we carried such an affection for you that we didn't only want to preach the gospel, but we also shared our very lives, right? Like you saw in us a reference point, something that we modeled, something that we lived. There was an influence. There was a pattern of sorts. Um, so when Paul says, follow me, 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I am what I am by the grace of God. So it's the evidence of the grace of God over time that actually creates a witness where we now have a reference point of what a transformed person actually looks like, right? Which is why when he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, he says a new believer can't be considered for leadership influence. Now, leadership by formation, not by function. Typically, we take leadership and we make it functional. Well, you, you're a finance pastor because you oversee spreadsheets all day. You know, like you're this, you're that. You can lead an initiative and be responsible for leading an initiative, but the leadership that's being described in Timothy and Titus is the one that's a reproducible life, that's created a reference point by modeling something over time with conviction and consistency that now becomes a reproducible element in the midst of a people, where you can plant someone and say, follow them. Like we co-sign on their way of life. We've watched them. We have a vantage point, uh, which is why a new believer can't be considered for leadership. We haven't had enough time to watch you live. We don't know who you're going to be when you're losing or when you're winning. In your ups, in your downs, right? The, the idea would be, um, let's say, Ezekiel 28. Uh, in the reference to the nature of the enemy or the wicked one. He says, you fell in love or you became infatuated with your own beauty. And it led you into corruption and you sinned. The idea of falling in love with yourself outside of surrender to Jesus is the idea of what Ezekiel 28 is communicating. And this is why new believers in one aspect can't be considered for this um, reference point in leadership. It's a relational influence uh, is because a lot of times we have uh, an awareness of gifting or ability that's being wielded outside of surrender to the Lord, which is why in Titus 1, one of the first things that's referenced is a man can't be self-willed in the consideration of leadership. You have to watch him, right? Paul says to, to Timothy, he has to have a good report with outsiders. He can't be given over to fits of rage. He's got to be the husband of but one wife. His children can't be unruly. Like, if a man can't manage his own home, right? We pay people to do publicly what they haven't proven they can do privately. But that's because we consider leadership in a functional way rather than according to formation. But what Titus and Timothy is considering is people that have been formed by the power of the Spirit. And there's a credibility because there's been enough time. 
to be able to have a vantage point or to have proximity to them where you've watched them live and the witness of God comes off of their life and shines the reality of a transformed person. And it's not perfection, it's posture. It's not perfection because perfection would eliminate all of us, but it's posture, right? It's you know what to do when you're in process. Right? It, 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 it's just the way that it is. So even the way that these things are communicated, uh, it's more so from like, hey man, like you're considering someone for influence in, the, in God's house? L- let me tell you what you should be looking for. Because when you put this person up and you say you endorse their way of life and everyone rallies around them and gets close to them, that relational influence that comes off of them, right? Like you say everything you know, but you actually reproduce what you are. That relational influence that comes off of them Make sure that you're vetting them in certain ways so that what their life influence multiplies in a communal experience um, are things that we actually should be looking for, right? We have the right metrics, which is why teaching is last in, in Paul's list to Timothy. It's almost last. Like, oh, and if you can teach, okay, that's amazing too, you know? But your life is more important, First Timothy 4.16. Watch your life and then your teaching. Because the idea is you shouldn't be teaching anything outside of what you actually live. Right? Like, but transformation is non-negotiable for the believer. It's, it's, it's for everyone. But then over time, it's just, I don't like the way that it sounds, man, but it's just true. Like, there are people that are more developed in God than others. Uh, and it's because they do consistently what other people do casually. It has nothing to do with special privilege or entitlement or like God picks favorites or like some are more valuable than others. It's just a fact. It's just reality. There are some that do more consistently what others do more casually. And so the development of the work of that spirit, like 2 Corinthians 6.1, don't partner with the grace of God in vain. Grace can be uh, given but there can be a lack of partnership on our side that actually is there to accomplish a kingdom agenda in us, you know? Um, so, so I think that's what leadership is more in relationship to in Timothy and Titus. Stuff makes me want to start praying in the Holy Ghost. Ish. Uh, just while Mike was talking, uh, and he referenced some different scriptures, but I, I was thinking about First Timothy five, twenty-two, specifically where Paul says, "Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Do not lay hands upon anyone too quickly, and thereby share in the responsibility for their sins. Therefore, keeping yourself free from sin, the sins of some people are quite evident. However, here's the warning: going before them to judgment for others, their sins follow after them." And so he says, likewise, also deeds that are good are quite evident and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. So it's the wisdom of God within the church, within the household of faith, as leaders are appointed for it, there to be a process attached to that of time. And it's just something that for the sake of putting people in positions, we have foregone and we have paid the price for it as a people wholesale because we continue to put people in positions that they are not qualified to be in a hundred percent um my dad used to say you know i grew up a pk but my dad used to say it is way easier 
um, to give keys away than it is to have to take them back. Um, and so in you, if you think in the context of the way so many local church fellowships are set up now, I have always personally had an issue with, you know, they, somebody comes to visit, let's get them signed up for, you know, the, the visitors luncheon. And on the second visit, we've got them in a class where they're learning about whatever their spiritual gifts are. We give them a test based on a personality and then we're plugging them into some serving and we've believed the lie in, in, in some sense that serving is equal to growing Mm -hmm. and it's not. And there are, it's just, I mean, you can have ambition in your heart, whether, you know, vacuuming the floor as much as you can actually preaching from a microphone and it's stuff that has to be worked out of us. So I just, there's this thing in my heart for, again, as Mike said, like, this is not about sinless perfection, but you know, know those who labor among you, like, who are you in relationship with? Who are you accountable to? Who are you doing life with and doing family? And that, that seeker sensitive per se to use what other phrase we could use that model of doing church it is so plastic and it is so counterfeit because it's transactional and not relational. We don't even, we don't know one another. We go there, we get our fix. We leave We're the, the building is empty 10 minutes after the, the bell has sounded and the service is over and we're on to the next one and nobody knows what's going on in anybody's life. I mean, it is in, in my opinion, I'm willing to take it to a place and say it is antichrist and it is anti kingdom. It flies right in the face of what the Bible teaches expressly. And this is why I said this morning that God has given us instructions and they're not unclear. They are clear. It is us who are choosing to violate the word of God by doing it our own way. And and God is not to blame for the way the church is in this hour. The church is to blame for the way the church is in this hour. And so, hallelujah. Next question. Come on, Hannah, you're a great question asker. I'm praying you. All right. So Acts chapter 7, Stephen is being stoned and he says, I see the son of man standing instead of being seated. So this is the question that Glenn asked me this morning. I said, oh my goodness. So uh, Mike, you want to go ahead? (laughs) Um, To put it in like a contemporary reference or analogy, I've often thought of it the same way that like a dad would rise in the stands to cheer for his son at a sporting event. Um, Stephen gives a witness by the evidence of the Spirit's work in him that cannot be manufactured outside of the grace and the power and the reality of God actually transforming him. Stephen provides a witness, and what I mean by that is, yes, he preaches, yes, he's got, you know, miracles on his life, yes, he, you know, has irrefutable wisdom and all of this stuff, but in the moment when they rally around him, 
and they're gnashing their teeth and they're filled with rage and they start to wield stones at him in the ending of his life. He's not um, trying to get even with them. He's not trying to run, to live, to preach another day, you know. Um, He's standing there, and in his execution, he is weeping over enemies and interceding for executioners. And he says, don't hold this against them. Right? He, he gives off what is the first reference to the witness of Jesus, much like Jesus himself gave on the cross. You know, so the reference of Stephen's death provides a reference point of the witness that excites Jesus in the consideration of the knowledge of God being revealed or released into the earth. Right? There is a witness through brokenness, through humility, um, through they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, not loving their own lives, even when confronted with death itself. The thought of the humility of the Lord to weep over enemies and intercede over executioners and to joyfully, willingly lay his life down to better those that were rage-filled and hostile against him. Right? Like, I will give my own life in a hope that it would crack your calloused heart and redeem you and restore you, and the offering of my life would make your life better. Right? So Stephen provides a reference point for this witness. And to me, I've always thought of it like, there it is. That's my boy. You know what I mean? Like, like that's what I'm talking about. You know? Um, and, it's, and it's ultimately that witness, that evidence, it's that living demonstration Right? It's that martyred way of loving obedience that ends up cracking the calloused heart one page later of the man Saul who arrogantly stood over his body. Right? And he said, why are you persecuting me? The idea is, you remember the dude who you stood over two days ago? Like, he gave you a witness of what I'm all about. You know? um, so for me, like, standing at the right hand, we know he is at the right hand, you know, ever living and interceding. But he told us what he wanted in Acts 1. He wants witnesses. I'm sending you power to be what you can't be on your own. No fleshly vice or manipulation can produce that evidence. It is the grace of God in the human experience to bring us to that place where we can actually reveal something of God that has to take God himself accomplishing the work in us. You know, and so for me, that's what I see in Stephen and Yeah, so I mean, many believe, and when I say many, I'm talking, you know, a more theological community, believe Stephen would have been in the crowd that heard Peter preach on the day of Pentecost, that he would have been rallied to Jerusalem, and that in responding to the gospel would have been a part of the company in Acts 2.42 says, and now they daily devoted themselves to a shared way of life that created the wineskin of sorts for God to develop the witnesses that he desired, right? Like the prescription produces the product, which is one of the things Acts is trying to communicate to us. You set your life up like this, you get these types of people. That's what Acts is actually, it's, it's history, but it's also prophecy. 
And what I mean by that is what was required in the beginning is going to be required at the end to develop witnesses again when the rage of the nations, tyrannical government structures, uh, assassins and blasphemers and murderers uh, are persecuting believers and finding them wherever they can be found. Um, and so Stephen, the pages flip super quick, but many believe that it'd be a period of about 20 years. 20 years almost by the time when Stephen gets executed. So, I mean, even if you say a period of 10 to 20 years, what is he doing? He's sharing in that they devoted themselves to a way of life. He's a part of a people, not to get into ministry, but to get into the knowledge of God. Yes. Right? His life is being formed and fashioned to be the witness that we get the evidence of. And then in Acts 6, he's part of the seven where a community witness says that he's filled of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. It wasn't some self-righteous appraisal, right, where they're putting in resumes. It was the community. It was the people rallied around them that said, man, if you need seven guys, like, this is one of those guys who fits that description. There was a corporate amen on Stephen's life, right? And they lay hands on him for the food pantry. But yet, simultaneously, he's in the streets, preaching with power. It's not one or the other, right? It's not, well, leverage your season in the food pantry so that you can get visibility out in the streets, right? It's not, it's not the manipulation machine where, like, I'll serve in this capacity as long as I have to, but what I really want is this. It's, it's the all in all, right? It's the baptism or the immersion into a way of life. Right? Baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that I command. It's an immersion into a way of life. The yoke of Jesus, living the scriptures, being formed under the yoke of Jesus and the teaching of the scriptures. Um, and then he's serving in the food pantry and also out on the streets. I, I just think it's a, it's a beautiful combination right, of the fullness of what the lives of witnesses are intended to actually be. So I'll phrase the question this way in the right this little five, six verses that we talk about all the time in our different communities, Acts two, forty two through forty seven. What does it look like practically to do that? Like not just in preaching, not just in saying these are the this is the foundation of the New Testament church. This is the these are the core principles, but you know, what does it practically look like for a community to house to house, the apostles' doctrine, the breaking of bread, prayer, like, yeah, community. What, what does that look like? Uh, okay, well, the, uh, I'm big on friendship, and so um, one historian said that the early church was a thousand pair of friends ready to die for each other a thousand pair of friends ready to die for each other they weren't just willing to die for jesus they were willing to die for one another shelby as you're pointing out they were willing to lay down their lives for one another so just thinking of the other romans 14 7 says none of us lives for ourselves none of us lives for ourselves it's romans 14 7 and 
I, you know, the, the role of, of love, no matter what the personality is, you know, it doesn't matter. I am to seek to love you and commit to love the Lord, love my neighbor, love enemies. Um, so I'm probably not the, the best to speak to like different personalities uh, on that. Um, like the practical dealing with, because to me it all go, boils down to the to same thing. If I, you know, if it's conflict resolution, go to them in private. Don't go to seventeen other people and say, hey, "I need you to be praying about this." <laughs> I'm having an issue with this person. Mm-hmm. You know, you you go to the Lord in private, pray about it. Then you go to them in private, and uh, and work on that and pursue loving that person, even if there's a conflict of personalities. Uh, my wife is a big extrovert. You know, if we took personality tests, which I don't really believe in that stuff that much. But she's a huge extrovert. I'm an introvert. So she's the life of the party, and I'm ready to go read a book somewhere in the corner. But but we've lived together for 23 years, and it, and it works. So I think the, the personalities can be very different. I mean, the early church, the Jerusalem church, think of this. They had 12 apostolic leaders all functioning in the same church. Twelve apostles all working together every day, living together, having meals together. So I don't lose that vision. We have to believe that that vision is available today, that you could have 12 apostolically gifted leaders all working together in the same church or same city, whatever, however you want to look at it. Um, So I don't know if I'm answering that, what you're looking for, Jen, or not, but I think that's where I would start. But over the years, that little rule of, if you have aught with somebody, if you had an issue with somebody, go to them in private. Shut down the gossip. Don't give ear to that. Go to them in private. Work on that with them. If you can't get any breakthrough there after working with that, being patient, praying into it, giving as much grace and mercy as you possibly can, then, then you get somebody else. Unless there's somebody that's, that's lives are getting damaged or something, you know. You, you got to step it up, that process a little quicker. Um, but then go get somebody else and... and I think we're quick to shun each other, you know, these days, like quick to just get rid of them. And uh, I want to go the opposite way. Even if the person's being divisive in the community, I want to give them a chance. I'm going to give them another chance. Let's talk to them. Let's keep working on it. I don't want to throw people away. I don't want to be quick to throw people away. You know, that whole thing where Paul was like ready to just, hey, man, we're going to turn this person over to Satan. You know, I've never done that before, but it's in the word, right? But I want to be on the side of like, let's give Let's give a lot of grace unless people's lives are being damaged, right? If there's, you know, so I don't want to get into that, but. Um, well, even in that context, I, I think that we read verses like that in the scripture and in our minds because we're not there and we're not understanding the full story. We think that, you know, that wasn't the first thing Paul did. Paul wasn't like, all right, I'm handing you over to Satan. Like it wasn't his immediate response. We know that Paul was a man of great patience. He had to be. He was one whom the Lord had labored along with for many years, even before he appeared on back on the scene doing ministry. So I just I actually was having a conversation with with, with Mike uh, at coffee yesterday and was just reiterating to him something that I know Jen and I believe strongly in and within the kingdom, within the family of God, is that there are really no such thing as disposable relationships, even if the relationship is broken or people choose to go their own way or separate way, it's, it should never be a closed door and, Hey, I hope I never see you again. It's, 
I'm praying for you. I'm continuing to labor with you in my heart. I really am in Christ Jesus wishing you not the best, but his highest and best for your life. Like if God's commanded us to pray for our enemies and to bless those who persecute us or curse us, I mean, how much more are we then commanded to live that way with each other, man, and to labor with one another? And I really believe that our lack of love and mercy towards one another is indicative of the reality that we ourselves, right? The Bible says, he who has been forgiven much loves much. So my lack of revelation concerning the depth of God's forgiveness towards me is what is producing an impatience in me towards others. And I just want to cut them off and push them away. And it's like, no, man, I need to have a deeper understanding of the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Um, so, so we have to realize that the church as a new creation, which the church is a new creation, right? We, we are the expression of one new man, according to Ephesians 2. So all of the enmities and hostilities have been abolished, they've been conquered. And now as a people, we live as ambassadors or as representatives. So the church as a family, as a people, bears the testimony of Jesus. Uh, and so our shared way of life bears the evidence of God's work in us and it carries an actual testimony, right? Uh, we often consider Philippians 4.2 where, I mean, just from the way that it's written, it assumes that two sisters in the church are having issues. Um, Eudia and Sintich, or however you pronounce their names. Um, and Paul's suggestion, I like it in one translation, uh, in the NASB it says, um, encourage these two sisters to live in harmony. Another translation says, for the sake of the gospel, live in harmony with one another. Um, if the gospel has done and is trying to do anything, it's trying to destroy our preferences and our prejudices. So the power of the gospel has to be more powerful than my preference. And a lot of times I, I think we, which is something Josiah and I were talking about yesterday, we remove the humanity in the text um, you know, we have the example in Acts 13 of Paul and Barnabas being commissioned out together. And because we wouldn't dare imagine the day when God would commission us alongside of someone that we didn't prefer, we read into the experience that they must have been like best friends, right? That they had everything in common, that they were boys, that like they loved rolling together. It doesn't actually say that, though. We just... <laughs> assume that because we would be so offended by the idea that God would put me alongside of someone that I didn't actually prefer. Right? And so the, the, the reality of all of these preferences, right? Romans 12, um, the second half of the chapter, Paul goes through this lengthy list of just practicals in how to relate to people. And one of the things that he mentions is he says, don't be wise in your own estimation or evaluation but associate with the lowly, right? Because we all, um, we're very familiar with transactional style relationships where we evaluate one another and we vet one another 
and dependent upon how we determine how you could be beneficial to me or my journey, then we determine the amount of space, time, or effort that we're going to be willing to give because we've been incentivized in a certain way. But to those who we don't seem or see, I was going to say seem to think of as a benefit, you know, we consider them to be disposable or peripheral, you know, when in reality, the church now as a community bears the responsibility of being a living witness or a living demonstration of the wisdom of the cross and the power of the blood to redeem a people from the broken system of the world, where the world is amazing at creating conversations and compartments that perpetuate hostility towards people groups. Whether it's black and white, whether it's Democrat and Republican, whether it's uh, cops or those that aren't a part of law enforcement, whether it's, uh, you know, feminists and, you know, males, whatever. Like, the, the world is amazing at creating categories and then inflaming and enraging hostility between people groups. Well, the church now bears the responsibility to be a place and to be a people where those conversations no longer get traction in our hearts. Yeah where we're not subdividing and categorizing and subcompartmentalizing people according to black, white, rich, poor, who you know, what you have, you know, uh, whatever, political affiliation, uh, sports team preference, although I'm not, I just don't like Yankee fans at all. I mean, <laughs> I still need help, right? I still need the gospel's work. In my own heart, Yankee fans are part of the family, too, if they're born again. Um, but I mean, seriously, like all jokes aside, um, the church is to be a place where all of that swirl that is in the world is no longer evidenced in the church as the expression of one new man. Um, you know, so I'll make a comment now. I hope to explain maybe later. The, the church is the place where the world is supposed to see what it looks like to live free from the powers. That's what the church is supposed to be. And in the place of our preference and in the place of our relationship, the influence of the powers at work in us, right? This is the journey of Ephesians, right? It's the exalted man, Jesus, reigning above the powers in Ephesians 1, alive from the dead. In Ephesians 2, it's the people of God redeemed from the world system, alive from the dead, no longer bound to a self-indulgent way of life, being ruled over by the influence of the powers. Ephesians 3.10, now the manifold wisdom of God on display in the church to actually give that witness as reality that they are alive from the dead and no longer bound to the influence of powers, right? They prophesy to powers and give instruction to powers which is your influence no longer gets traction here. Your work of division and hostility and prejudice and preference and racism and corruption no longer finds placement in how we feel or think. We are free from you. We are alive to God. We are a living evidence or witness or demonstration, you know, which is why Ephesians 4.1, now walk worthy of that call. Like this is completely insane to think we can accomplish in our own strength. But even our relationships themselves, they bear a testimony. And it's way more important to the Lord than we think it is. 
It's way more important to the Lord than we think it is. The prioritization of the family of God living as a heavenly colony in cities, regions, and across the global landscape is the greatest evidence of the majesty of Jesus. When you say what's the greatest thing that the gospel accomplished, it's a family alive from the dead in Christ being conformed to his image and made to be a royal priesthood. That is the greatest thing that the gospel has accomplished. The greatest thing. It's not prophecy. It's not raising the dead. It's not healing. It's not miracles. It's not telling people their anniversary, their address, their birthday. None of those things are the greatest thing that the gospel has accomplished. Um, Sorcerers worked with that type of witness. (laughs) They sing the song to the lamb on the throne in Revelation 5 because they say you actually did it. You took a wicked, broken, hostile, insecure creation. You became one of them. You laid down your life for them. You were raised from the dead in order to make a way for them. You've given them your own spirit and have transformed them. And they now have become a people that actually look like you, that carry your stature, your actual substance by way of transformation. And you have made them to be a royal priesthood. And you are worthy of glory forever and ever and ever. So the the relational preference thing is a really big deal. And and I I don't think that we could overemphasize it enough in the place of how we actually live alongside of one another and relate to one another and share our lives with one another. Um, It carries the glory of God and the witness of Jesus to a broken and hostile world around us. And God added to their number daily those who were provoked by the way God possessed a people and caused them to be something and to be something to one another that the world just can't manufacture in the best of its intellect or resources. Matt, you want to answer that? Go ahead. Um, You have a daughter. Yeah, I do. I have a great daughter. And it's it's not fair because she's so modest. She's twelve, but if she sees even some friends that come over to the house, she's, she'll call it out. She says, That's immodest. So she's always been that way. I didn't teach that to her. Um, I don't even. Petrina invests in her all obviously, and uh, my wife dresses modest, but loves clothing and loves to look nice. And oh lord, and she makes a lot of money, so she can afford that stuff. So <laughs> she she comes up with some nice stuff. Um, and the stuff shows up in my closet and I don't know how it got there and it's just great. So wear this bub. Uh, but, um, Mia just, she has that modesty in her heart. She always has. So if there's something that's inappropriate, she's like, dad, that's inappropriate. So it's really not fair for me to speak on this, <laughs> but, uh, we, uh, you know, we, yeah, yeah, we could stay in, in Ephesians. We, you know, we're preaching the book of Ephesians here today. So Ephesians, Jesus washes his bride with the water of the word so i'm intentional in my home to wash my wife and my daughter with the word i'm constantly singing the word over them speaking the word over them wake up i'm speaking the word over them i'm speaking that value system jesus the way jesus sees you over them so i'm sowing the seed of the word into their hearts and uh it's, and i you know and i try to pay attention when they show me when their hair's done things like that i, I want to speak to that and 
and and why it's beautiful and you know it's it's from your heart you're beautiful but this is nice too you know i keep the the main things the main things but for me it's uh i don't know how to do this so i speak the word of god you know i speak the word of god over my wife over my daughter and i keep that in front of them and um and just try to model that um I love being a girl dad. I don't know what it is, dude. I am, I love having a daughter. It is amazing. I love it. It's amazing. And she tells people, my daddy's my best friend. She tells people, my dad's my best friend. And uh, and and we we're good buddies. But you know, she she listens to me and respects me. But um, yeah, I don't I don't know, man. I just feel the like the holy trust the presence of God, the Holy Spirit. You know, we teach her to pay attention to the inward witness of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. She, you know, she, we teach her, I, she'll say, daddy, I got a check. We go into a store, daddy, I got a check. I say, hey, okay, what do you mean? Well, that guy there ain't right. There's something not right about that guy. I say, okay, well, let's pay attention. What's the Holy Spirit trying to tell us? Do we need to shine our light to him? Go say something kind to share, share Jesus with them? Or do you mean this person is unsafe? And she's oh, they're unsafe. Okay. So we're trying to teach her to live prophetically, hear the voice of God. So when she sees something, She's like, that's, that's inappropriate. She'll say it straight up. I mean, she's been like that for a while, so that's probably not fair. And I, I'm not saying I did that like I was a great father and that was the result, but it's the work of the Lord in her heart, you know. And uh, Petrina keeps that in front of her as well, you know. Um, but it, it starts where your heart is, you know. You know, living right, we we live here at the beach. You know, a lot of us, we've been to the beach together many times. And so I know we've had conversations with each other, especially, you know, as men, loving our wives, loving our children, most importantly, loving Jesus with our eyes, but looking out for one another. And not this thing of like, hey, bro, what are you looking at? But I mean, I mean, I intentionally, if I see something and I know that it's like, I, I turn my eyes the other way. And if I'm with other guys, I'll be like, hey, bro, look over here. Like, we went to the water park on Connor's birthday here in town, and we prayed before we went. I felt like the Lord said it was okay to go. There are some days where we've gone to go to the water park, and we felt like the Lord said, don't go, because there were going to be certain things going on that day that maybe the, we didn't need to draw our attention to. And I'm not trying to be legalistic in any kind of way, but I will just say, like, to me, the preservation of... Um, the sanctuary of my heart before the Lord is more important to me than going to the beach or going to this or doing that. And so we love to go to the beach when we know it's not crowded and it's not going to be an issue. And it's not because I'm walking around with a desire to lust in my heart, but it's, I am a human being. I'm a man made in the image of God. I was made to create, to gaze on beauty, the beauty of God and the beauty of my wife. And I don't want to create space in my heart for anything to contend with that. Um, and so I, I don't, I mean, even as a community like with my sons, you know, I don't have little girls, but we have two boys, they're nine and seven and our boys know at nine and seven already, they're well aware of perversion. They're well aware of immorality. They're well aware of, they're not, they're not dumb. They're far more insightful in seeing than the world wants to give our kids credit for, man. They see it, they hear it, they know it, they perceive it. And again, just agreeing with what Tammy said of, you know, I early on for Jen and I as parents, like we got forced into a place of having conversation with each other 
about when the right time was to have conversation with our kids. I don't want to get ahead of the curve and, and baptize them in things that they don't need to be burdened with. But at the same time, more now than ever, because of where we are at in the end of the age and the way that principalities and powers are raging and the culture is given over to this in a massive way, like we're being forced and not being forced. Like I feel a burden from the Lord as a parent to control the narrative in my kids' lives according to the biblical narrative and according to the word of God. And I'm going to have the conversation with them at any point where I feel like if they're in danger of having a conversation or being introduced to something and I'm not going to be able to be there to shepherd them in that, I'm going to have the conversation with them because I know that I'm going to be able to shape them biblically, shape them in the image of God. Does that make sense? And I feel like as parents, young parents, especially like with young kids, Again, I'm not saying take your three-year-old and go teach them the birds and the bees, but I will tell you right now, what 20 years ago you didn't figure out till you were 15, your seven-year-old's figuring it out, man. Like, whether they see it on TV, an iPad on their phone, at the grocery store, whatever, I mean, the LGBTQ agenda and all this stuff that you never, dude, it's so in our face, it's so out there, and, and the world does not care. Principalities and powers don't care. The culture doesn't care. They want to shove this crap down our throats a hundred percent. And I feel like, you know, even as we were talking earlier, I was being reminded by the Lord of something that that the Lord had said to us years back when we started creating the t-shirt company. And he said, I want you to take back the narrative. I want you to take back the narrative. I, well, even what Mike was saying about just those, the world is so great at creating conversations there's an agenda there to, to do something and to create context and to create an opinion and to, and I, I mean, again, I feel like it is the responsibility of the church now and always and in this season to control the narrative about anything and everything that God is talking about. And that includes our kids. And I love that. I, and, and I, for me, that starts in my home. So that like, practically we don't put, my daughter's. she has lots of friends that have already seen several PG-13 movies. I don't care if people think I'm old school or what. My daughter is not watching PG-13 movies. I don't care if it's popular or not. She's not. We don't allow her. We don't put that stuff in front of her. Those images are not allowed to be in front of her eyes. We monitor what she watches on TV. And she. I don't watch TV. I, dad's somewhere praying and let's go find where dad's at or whatever. But... Um, you know, I watch shows every now and then, but for the most part, that you got to set a standard in your own home of what you're going to allow to be in front of your family's eyes. Right. And um, if you have Facebook, you know from time to time stuff's going to pop up that's off. You'll get a friend request or whatever from somebody that this is who is this? You know, and it, then you get slimed. That's what I call it. You got slimed. I just. You know, you get slimed. So, but I'm not going to let her get into that scenario. I think one of the I think one of the biggest disconnects for Christian parents in community is this misunderstanding. Here's what doesn't work: do what I say and not what I do does not work. All right? We know that it's hypocrisy, right? But we do it with our kids, or if we are, we shouldn't be like. Don't tell your kids not to do something and you're doing it. Don't watch that, but you're watching this. Don't listen to that, but you're like, I don't want them to become like I am. Dude, what are you even saying? Like, 
you need to repent and get your heart right with the Lord. Like you need to be beholding God and your children will behave according to what they see you doing. I think I got, I've got a question. Here's a deeper question of then what do you do when you're pouring your heart, mind, and soul into your children and you're creating a culture in your home that is of the kingdom and is of the Lord and you're still not winning their hearts? What do you do? try to put them both together yeah. <laughs> right so in the idea of modesty I have two girls I have a 13 year old and an eight year old I have three boys too and I don't treat it different I, I do understand with girls usually the assumption is that it's more necessary on their side um, I, I think some things that have been big for my wife and I some things that have already been said obviously like what we model in the home is ultimate um, we have to live our lives as an example and create a reference point in the house. Um, we have to let the Lord define what beauty is. You know, uh, we often look at Isaiah 53 two, which says there was nothing about him that you would desire him in speaking about Jesus. You know, and so I've asked my kids, you know, from time to time, like what? Is it about Jesus that's beautiful to you? Because Isaiah is saying that there was nothing about his earthly form that would have created the type of draw or, you know, magnetism of sorts. Um, because we're really conditioned by Hollywood telling us what's beautiful. Magazine covers telling us what's beautiful. Social media telling us what's beautiful. Um, you know, when the Lord is like, I don't think like you, right? I'm not like you. So we have to let God define what beauty is. Um, you know, what we expose our kids to create appetites in them. Um, you know, Proverbs 16, 26 has always been big. Uh, it says the appetite of a laborer works for him. His hunger drives him on. You know, for me, we, we joke uh, with others about I, I don't keep soda and I don't keep candy in my house. Because when I do have it in my house, my kids ask me for it every single day. And it drives me bananas. But if it's not there, they don't ask for it. So there's something about them being exposed to it or constantly being able to gaze or to see it uh, and interact with it that way that creates an unnecessary appetite in them. Um, I remember watching a movie years ago and my son came over, he's 11 now, uh, and he was like, Dad, can I watch the movie with you? And this was years ago. And I was like, no. And he was like, well, why? And I said, well, this movie's for adults. And he was like, well, what does that mean? You know, and I was like, well, um, what that means is dad is responsible to protect your innocence. And there are things in the movie that you don't need to be watching, and I'm accountable to that. It sounded amazing, right? <laughs> he walks away, not 30 seconds after he walked away. The Lord said, man, you realize that you're supposed to protect his innocence. I was like, I do. He was like, so when in your journey did it become okay for you to willingly corrupt yours? I was like, well, like, I'm just going to turn this off, you know. It's like, so, so I think 
you know, allowing the Lord to define what beauty means. Um, I think modeling something in the house, I think being accountable to what we expose them to. Um, and then using the world of sorts, if I say it that way, using the world to train them in righteousness. Um, you know, creating object lessons along the way and allowing what is the brokenness of the world to become a place of instruction. You know, for instance, like uh, I was a drug addict for more than a decade in a sexual lifestyle by 11 or 12, gang life, in and out of jail 15 times, um, sexually transmitted disease. I had herpes when I was 17. Um, the Lord healed me after I got born again. Doctors don't know why it's not in my bloodstream anymore. Uh, was an alcoholic, was all this stuff, right? So my kids are aware of my testimony. Um, I share my story with them in a way that they can handle based off of where they are because I want to train them, not in fear, but in the knowledge of God and in his grace that's made available so that they don't actually have to be incentivized by things that the world offers and that they can be preserved in a sense by the grace of God, not to be afraid of the world, but to be instructed of what's happening in the world and for them to know that influence doesn't actually have to like lay hold of them to where they have to come back to God later on. Um, you know, and then in the idea of like, what do you do when you've done everything you can do and it still doesn't go the way that everybody's hoping for. This is where, this is where like the human experience is difficult because we're not robots and we just can't program people to do what we want them to do, not even our kids. Uh, I was going through what you, I guess you could call like an Old Testament survey with my three older kids. And in the beginning, when we were in the, like the first two chapters of Genesis, um, you know, the garden experience, I was like, man, like God longs to share himself with people. And he created a space in order for him to be able to create people to give himself to them in an extravagant way. Like Eden was for the Lord. It wasn't just for Adam. Eden was for the Lord because God desires a space to be able to reveal himself and give himself in an extravagant way. And I was, so you know, we're setting up the story and I was like, the first two people that God makes, the first two, we're not even like a hundred years into the story. The first two people in a perfect environment, walking with a tangible God. They rebel against him. And they don't make the right decisions, and they do whatever they want. And God has to instruct them and correct them and discipline them in love, you know? So sometimes we tend to the garden, and sometimes we create what we know is an environment for our kids to encounter the Lord and they still make their own decisions. And that's the part of the story that's hard, you know? I mean, but there's real grace and God loves them more than we do. You know, that's where the encouragement is. They belong to the Lord. You know, and like Paul said in Acts 20, I have to commit you to the Lord. You know, like I carry a jealousy for you, but at the, and now obviously, he was talking to the leaders in Ephesus on the beach of Troas. So I'm not saying he was, but he saw them in a fatherly way, um, even though they weren't naturally his own kids. Um, he's like, man, at the end of the day, like, 
I can do everything that I can do, but I have to entrust you to the Lord, you know, to believe. Now, now that's not a lack of responsibility, right? That's not what I'm saying. It doesn't mean we check out and we're just like, oh, then it's a free for all. And like, hey, yo, you do whichever you do. And like at the end of the day, God's going to have to chase you down. No, no, no. We're still responsible to cultivate the garden. But from within the garden, we are all accountable to the Lord and the decisions that we make, you know, to walk with God. And that, that part is hard. As far as the leadership conversation goes concerning this character attribute, right, of one who should be able to rule over their own home, at what point is it because I cannot, I'm disqualified? At what point is it as a parent, if you are, you're doing all the right things, but you just can't get a hold of that rebellious daughter or that rebellious son. I mean, I've had mentors in my life who I've watched agonize over who were legit men and women of God and agonized over the reality that there was no, in one sense, amount of praying, fasting, preaching, loving, spanking, disciplining, just nothing would take. So at what point then, you know, is there a, hey, do I take a break? Do I take a sabbatical? Am I disqualified? Am I out? Am I, what would you say? Yeah, I, I think the question, it's a big question, right? Second um, Timothy 4, Timothy is giving the description of the last days. And in his description of the last days, he begins to give some of the characteristics that are going to plague the church. And the traction of the world is going to get into the church and the church is going to normalize worldliness, right? And one of the things, it's not just, you know, men will be lovers of themselves. Um, you know, they'll be lovers of money. They'll be irreconcilable. He says, um, children would be disobedient to parents. Uh, I think in the evaluation, it's so important that we have a communal or a community witness as to who folks are. Um, you know, because when you raise your kids and you, let's say, the first 12, 13 years of their life, um, it's cool that they're never in church on Sunday because little Jimmy's great in baseball, right? And so he made the AAU team and they travel and he's going to play every Sunday. And there's no real, let's say, cultivating the garden at home. It all starts back to like on a day-to-day -day basis. Right. Like what are we actually building and cultivating in our home with our children? You know, um, when we're not actually being responsible to shepherd our children, to pastor them and to create a space and cultivate something of God in our own homes, then it's going to be very difficult when we become fully reliant upon a weekly experience to preserve them, disciple them. You know, uh, you know, it's like it's like the family that shows up with their kids for the first time at house church. Right. And they're like, so what do you got for my kids? And I'm like, well, we've got you. That's what we've got for your kids. You know, like we're like the 12 tribes of Israel around here. You know, what I'm saying like everybody's accountable to their own tribe. And little Jimmy's going to have a really hard time if this is the only space where this is the experience. 
Like if you're never opening the word together, if you're never worshiping together, if you're never praying together, then you can't just every once in a while pop into a gathering somewhere and expect them to integrate in a perfect way. You know, the issues don't develop later on. The issues have been developing, you know, and the older they get and the more strength that they get in their will as they're growing in their awareness of themselves, they just begin to manifest things and not manifest. um, You get what I'm saying. They they begin to manifest things that the the inception of this was much, much longer ago. You know, rarely have I seen um, someone who labored and prioritize the things of God in their own home, have issue with kids that were smaller, preteen, you know what I mean? Like what you raise them in and what's normalized for them, right? Train up a child in the way that they should go. You know, Um, if we're raised daily, now granted, I mean, obviously, when I say daily, please don't nobody get any you know, unrealistic picture. But when we're raised daily, like, you know, in the word together, praying together, focusing on God, man, even 10, 15, 20 minutes at the end of the day together, beginning of the day together, it normalizes something in their heart and in their experience, you know, Um, and it becomes difficult to break that, you know. Um, I, I heard it said at one point in Catholic school training, this is, this is not a comment on Catholicism. I w- let's just stay where we're at. Um, but they said if they could get a child and have them for the first couple of years, I think it was up to like six or seven, that they could make them a Catholic for the rest of their life. But it was all because of those infant and developmental stages, mm-hmm. you know, of what's actually being developed and happening. Um, you know, So I think it's a much bigger and harder question than to just kind of like one size fits all in the answer, you know? Come on. And when people know you, that's what I mean by like a community witness, when people know you and they've been laboring alongside of you and it's like, man, no, like I, I know Greg, you know, for 15 years, man, he's given his whole life to his kids and he tended to the garden and. You know, at the end of the day, man, his kids made their decisions. I think the beauty of living among other believers, being in a in a community, a family of faith, is 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 super cool because you have different models all in the house to glean from, that are doing things that are Christ-like, right? So I can't. Because I say I don't let my daughter watch PG-13 movies, you know, you could take that and be like, oh, well, I have and feel condemnation. Well, I'm just one in the family that is living out the best I can with fear and trembling, seeking out my own salvation with fear and trembling before the Lord. So I can't enforce a personal conviction on you like it's a biblical mandate. That's a personal conviction to me. There's nothing in the Bible that speaks to that kind of thing, except that, you know, you don't want to put anything pure before your, uh, impure before your eyes, uh, which <laughs> most PG-13 movies are. But like if, if you're in a Christian family, you go to different ones in the community and learn because your children may be completely different than mine, you know. Um, and so we, we, the value of having models in the family where we can glean from one another. This one's doing this really well before the Lord and you can learn from them. And, uh, 
And then you're going to have ones in the communities that are going to be, this is how I've done it. And it may be completely, uh, it may convict you some. And, but you'll, you may convict me next week of something else. So that's the kind of the beauty of the iron sharpening iron among a family is uh, we glean from one another and we're all becoming the habitation of God together, obviously. Um, but having those elder elders in the community, you know, when you're getting here started and stuff, that, that's the beauty of multi-generational. I love the multi-generational aspect of, of, of our home church. I love being able to walk over to Dick Eastman who's been in ministry over 55 years, and him say to me, I just want to know him. I just want to know Jesus. It's all about knowing Jesus. You know, and he's like, I'm taking a five-week sabbatical so that I can just be alone with Jesus and come back and share what he showed me, you know. So it's like being in a community, that's the value of it, is, you know, do you understand what I mean by you can't enforce a personal conviction like it's a biblical mandate? Yeah. Biblical mandates, those are non-negotiable. Sermon on the Mount, non-negotiable. Biblical, the Ten Commandments, non-negotiable. Um, loving your wives as Christ loved the church, non-negotiable. You know, those are, those are, but what that looks like, how you live that out, a lot of times you can have a personal conviction before the Lord that is yours and it's good and it's right, but I can't enforce that on, on everybody else in the community, right? But I can, I can learn from you and I can see the fruit on your life that is coming from the decisions that you've made before the Lord. Most of the kingdom is about decisions that we make. You know, and um, you can glean from the wisdom inside of a community. You know, the, the ability to make godly decisions for Christ-like living among the family. All right, last question. I'm sorry, I'm not laughing. I'm, I'm laughing at like, oh my God, this could be an all-day conversation. Like, so, so I have a book on fasting in the back. I have a second book. It's a volume two. Um, two quick places. That's just the way I'll answer the question. Matthew 6, Jesus says when you do it. When. It is, means when, right? Not if. Um, when you fast, when you pray, when you give. Uh, Matthew 9, he says, when he's confronted, right, they come with an indictment, and they say, we've been watching you and your guys. We fast, you don't, right? The, the idea was the Pharisees would fast two days a week. They did it for performance and not for pursuit. Two days a week for performance and not for pursuit, right? Uh, but they bring the question to Jesus, we've been watching and you don't fast. He says, they have no need to fast. The bridegroom is among them. He says, but in the days that the bridegroom is taken up from them, then those that are mine, my followers, my disciples, then they will be found fasting, right? So to, there's something about the absence of Jesus that is to provide fuel or motivation in our posture of fasting. He is not here the way he longs to be here, and fasting creates a posture that increases longing. It's that Maranatha, 
come Lord Jesus, right? He says, when I'm taken up from them, then they will fast, right? So there's something about his absence that is to provide a fuel or a motivation in our posture to create perspective and longing and groaning of sorts for the return of the bridegroom. <laughs> Go ahead, Mike. Um, is there precedence? Yeah, no, no, I get you. Is there, is there a person in, in the text that we can glean from? Um, so biblically, I don't think the examples that are given are exclusive to men. Even if there's not a woman example, right? Um, you know, I think I've heard it put, there's an intercessor in the heavens and it's not a woman, <laughs> right? It's, yeah. it's a man, you know what I'm saying? Like Hebrews 7.25 is the man Jesus who's the intercessor in the heavens, you know, yet men often try to make the ministry of intercession exclusive to women who don't have anything else to do. <laughs> right. Like, well, we've got to work. You know, we, we've got stuff to do. You know, men show up for a work day. They won't show up for a prayer meeting. You know, I mean, just whatever. So I don't think the examples that are given in Scripture are exclusive to men. Um, you know, a reference point for a woman fasting long periods of time for me is my wife. Um, we try to, as much as we're able, do every fast together, um, whether she hears from the Lord about it or whether I do. Um, even in days of being pregnant, um, you know, Anna will Daniel fast. Um, we did a year-long Daniel together. We've done a variety of 40s together. Um, there's just been all types of experiences together. Um, and that's because we haven't put any limitations on following Jesus and the grace that's possible, you know, and there for male and female, you know, um, Adam is just human. You know what I'm saying? Like in the beginning, yes, I get it. It's a person, you know, but the first version of the human experience, so to speak, um, so I, I don't think that it's exclusive to men, even though there's not, you know, um, a woman example, so to speak. I mean, we don't know about Anna in the temple, but with fasting and prayer, spent her life on the Lord, you know, anticipating his coming, you, you know, like a way of life in fasting. Yeah, which I'll tell you what, a, a 40 is much harder than or a, a 40 is much easier than a way of life. I tell you that, like, I know people who have cracked 40s that don't even walk with God anymore. <laughs> you know, so like, like a 40 is not the, the end all be all, you know, like going to make me Superman for the rest of my life. Um, so Anna, in a way of life, 
spending her life on God in fasting and praying. Um, man, the way of life is much harder than, you know, the, the sacrifices we offer to s satisfy our conscience. I, I, I will end here, but I, I would just say, because I've read, so I've read both of Mike's books on fasting, and one of the things that I most personally enjoyed as someone who has fasted and prayed and failed more fast than I finished and but done some long ones and done some short ones. I, I've been re-provoked by the books to engage in the light, to re-engage the lifestyle of prayer and fasting. And that language of even, bro, what you just said of having done the long fast and then almost been disappointed. <laughs> like, it, like, what did I think was going to happen? Like... I was going to turn into super Christ, like, yeah. and all of a sudden I was going to empty out hospitals and <laughs> oh my God, three days later, I'm like, my flesh is like, ah, and I'm like, I feel cheated. <laughs> and again, it's that everything, man, the Lord calling us into a lifestyle of prayer and fasting and submission to the spirit. I, I, she has a comment and I have one more question. Okay. Can I Sure. I've heard somebody that when they went into a fast, they did go, like sometimes they would go in for a specific purpose, seeking a certain thing, but they would also go in just like with a blank slate of let's let God reveal things that need work. And because you are denying your flesh so much in the fast, and then it comes out and it's like, that's what you work on. So you said that, and it just kind of like clicked in my mind. Just pray real quick, and then we'll get out of here. Father. We love you, Lord, we thank you for this time, this dialogue, Lord, with you and with each other, and God, I just ask, Lord, we, we're praying together, Lord, believing that everything that we're seeing and that we're hearing, Lord, would just continue to cause us to be rightly aligned with who you are, so that we can continually be conformed to the image and likeness of Jesus. Jesus, thank you, Lord, just thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you're doing. Lord, I pray that, God, the words that have been spoken in this conversation would not be wasted, that they would not fall upon deaf ears, but that, Lord, that they would find a place in the seedbed, in the soil of our hearts, and that these biblical realities would go down deep on the inside of us, God, and that it would bring to each one of us, all of us in this room, God, that it would bring a deeper sense of conviction and a grace with it, God, to walk out, Lord, these realities, God, that we're talking about today. In Jesus' name, amen.